You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn to the second book of Chronicles, chapter 34. We'll begin our reading at verse 14. The first 13 verses of this chapter describe the reformational work of King Josiah, as well as the repairing of the temple of the Lord after a time of great apostasy and disobedience, as well as neglect. We begin our reading then in 2 Chronicles 34, beginning at verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. And Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary and Azaziah the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess Hulda, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokhath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem 
He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Israel did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. Preached to you this morning from the Word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses that in the second part of Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. On the whole, those who divided the Catechism into 52 Lord's Days did a remarkably good job. I would, however, say that here in Lord's Day 34, they fell down a bit because really these two questions and answers deserve a Lord's Day all by themselves. Lord's Day 34, 35. Let us read then 94 and 95. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. And further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, I am sure that it has happened to some of you as well. You have this old cupboard in your house, or you have this closet that you haven't really touched or cleaned out for years. But then one day you receive an extra ounce of determination and energy, and you decide today is the day. And so you get in there. You pull one thing out after another. You dig down deeper and deeper. And you know, the stuff that comes out is amazing. And it's also surprising. Things that went missing long ago, stuff that you can hardly remember that you even had, surprise after surprise unfolds. Why, sometimes you even discover something really special that you had long ago forgotten about. Well, beloved, in a manner of speaking, that is also what happened to Hilkiah the priest. It was renovation time in the temple of Jerusalem. And he went about digging around in one of the storerooms of the temple. 
And look what he found. I found the book of the law in the temple of God, he exclaims. And with trembling and excited hands, he brought it to Shaphan, the secretary of the king. And together they rushed to the palace and presented it to King Josiah. And the king's reaction, when he heard what was in the book, he tore his robes. He sent some men to a local prophetess. And thereafter he called all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and the people, both small and great, of Jerusalem together. And he had the book of the law read. And he renewed the covenant with the Lord. And he made everyone give their pledge of allegiance to the Lord. And the work of reformation continued. And now, beloved, when you read that, you might ask yourself, what really is going on here? Why all of this drama and excitement? Why all of these special measures? What is happening? Well, for one, a very special book has been found. You might wonder what it is. You might wonder how it ever got lost. Well, remember in those days, most laws and most news was transmitted orally. They didn't have books and paperbacks and libraries as the Internet as we have today. No, most things were passed along mouth to mouth, repeated often and frequently recalled. And as for the really, really important things, they were not just passed along orally. They were written on long scrolls and stored in the sanctuary. And that's what happened to this scroll as well. Only as time went on, and as the people of Judah wandered further and further away from the Lord, they forgot about the scroll. National amnesia set in. Foreign religions became all the rage in the land. The Lord and the things of the Lord receded into the background. And even important things got lost. And you may know, beloved, that happens more often. Do you know that at the beginning of the 19th century, there was hardly a copy of the Canons of Dort, one of our confessions, to be found in the entire Netherlands? Do you know that it took a reformer like Hendrik de Kock to find it and to have it reprinted? In times of deformation, many important things get lost. And that went for the book of the law as well. But what was the book of the law? Well, most likely, beloved, it was the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Torah. For all, all the books of the Bible, it spells out most clearly what it is that the Lord expects of his people. And it presents us with God's ancient covenant treaty with its preface, its promises, its commands, its blessings, and its curses. And should you ask what is now at the heart and the center of the book of the law, or the book of Deuteronomy. Well, as the title suggests, it is the law. It is the law of the Ten Commandments. 
And if she should ask what is now the heart and the center of the Ten Commandments, then it is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the basic premise of the law. That's the underlying principle. That's the fundamental assertion on which all of the other commandments stand or fall. It all comes down to commandment number one. Yes, and if that's true of the law, beloved, it's also true of our thankfulness or gratitude. For as we saw last time, it is the law of the Ten Commandments that defines the content and the substance of our thankfulness. And now we shall see together this morning that living a truly thankful, grateful life only happens when we know who our God is and when we truly love Him first and love Him only. To see that in some detail, I preach to you on the theme, our gratitude begins with embracing the only true God. And we shall consider together the aim of the first commandment, the warning in the first commandment, and the goal of the first commandment. Now, beloved, this first commandment reads, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what is that? Well, you can say that it's a commandment that has everything to do with relationship, the relationship between God and man. It's saying that we people can have only one God, one true God in our lives. But why? Why can we have only one God? Well, the answer, beloved, lies in the question, why did God make us? You know, God made the birds to fly in the sky. God made the worms to crawl and creep in the ground. God made the fish to swim in the sea. He made the pigs to frolic in the mud. But he made man, he made you and I, fundamentally for worship and fellowship. We cannot live without looking up to someone. We are made to praise and adore, to trust and to love something or someone. Consider Adam without God to love. He's lost. As human beings, we have to have, we must have a God. We must have a hero. We must have something or someone to worship. Yes, we're now created with this innate tendency. The Lord comes to Israel and he comes to us and he, he wants to make something crystal clear. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God is saying, I know, I know you because I made you. I designed you. I invented you. I created you. I know the tendency of your heart. 
and the hunger of your soul and the thrust of your life. And I know you cannot live without worship. But just make sure that you direct your worship at me. You know, beloved, a careful reading of this commandment should make us realize that God is not saying that there are no other gods or that he is the only God. Of course, he says that elsewhere. But here, in the first commandment, the point is different. Here God is really asserting that in this life there are many gods. They may not be real, they may not be alive, they may not actually exist, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that people think that they're real and true and worthwhile and exciting. Truly, we live in a world of many gods. Yes, and in such a world, God wants to make sure that he is the only true God. He tolerates no competition. He's not willing to share. He's not happy just to be number one in your life. No, he wants it all. Exclusive worship, exclusive praise, exclusive obedience, exclusive allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, no other gods before my face. No other gods before or in my presence. And my face and my presence is everywhere. Nothing else is allowed to stand before you. That's where I belong. I and I alone. Now, beloved, that's quite an assertion. That's quite something to say that. It does, of course, raise a number of questions. The first question is, why is God so insistent on this? Does he demand this because he needs us? Is he perhaps, excuse it, insecure? Does he need our praise to feel good about himself? Or, and I say that carefully, is he self-centered and selfish? Is he someone who needs his ego stroked and boosted all the time? Beloved, this is not at all about God needing us. Our God is eternally sufficient within himself. No, what this is really about is us needing him. The clay needs the potter. The children need their father. The creatures need the creator. For not only have we been made by God, but we've also been made for God. And without Him, we have no life. And so you see, in this first commandment, beloved, a wonderful thing is happening. 
God is coming to us and He is saying that we need to have Him in the center of our lives if we really truly want to live. He's saying He's a jealous God. And that His jealousy is not simply about His holiness but also about the well-being of His people. Other gods cannot fill you, save you, love you, guide you, keep you. Bless you. So what is this first command? It's fundamentally a commandment filled with love and concern for us. God wants to keep us close to himself. Because only then can we live and fly and soar and be truly happy. Yes, and the Heidelberg Catechism, which gets all of its wisdom from the Holy Scriptures, knows this. And that's why it urges us to be what we are meant to be and to live as we are meant to live. And how are we meant to live? Well, you can see it, beloved, in answer 94 of the Catechism with its march of verbs. First, we are meant to know this God. The Catechism says that I rightly come to know the only true God. And you may be aware of the fact that that verb to know has different connotations also in Scripture. Sometimes it has a sexual meaning as in the expression so-and-so knew his wife. At other times it has a kind of formal or superficial meaning. But you know, here to know is to know with passion. To know with the intent of intimacy. To know deeply. You and I have a calling to know our God for who He is. And then to know Him deeply. And that's a lifelong pursuit. A glorious pursuit. For this knowing will never be exhausted. And will simply reveal one marvel after another. And so we're meant to know this God. We're also meant to trust in Him alone. And that means, of course, beloved, that all of our hope and our confidence and our security are to be in Him. Because He's the only one who really understands and who responds and knows and, and does what is best for us. You know, trust is something that we put in partners and in family and in friends. But only God can be completely trusted without fail, without disappointment. When you build your hopes on Him, you will never regret it. Trust in Him alone. And then the Catechism also reminds us, according to the Scriptures, that we are meant to submit to Him only. I recognize that that word, that's a bad word today, isn't it? A lot of couples would like to remove it from the marriage form and Citizens would like to remove that word submit from forms of allegiance. 
Workers don't want it in relationship to their employers, but, but nevertheless, our God is not just creator, but he's also the great sovereign. He's the only true source of authority. And as such, we need to know our place before him. And the only fitting response to his great power and sovereignty is first, humility. And then because this power and authority is beyond our comprehension and understanding, the second reaction, says the Catechism, is patience. Our great God knows always what he is doing. So take a deep breath. Hang on. And wait with patience. But then, beloved, in addition to knowing, trusting, and submitting to him, the Catechism also reminds us that we are to expect all good from him only. Expect all good. That's nice. Sounds like a sales pitch, but really it's a sure and certain promise. James reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down to us from the Father of the heavenly lights. And the Apostle Paul goes even further and he insists that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. You know, in ancient times, there was a saying that all the roads led to Rome. Well, you can say that for God's children, ultimately, all the roads of life lead to our good, our benefit, our blessing. And I know sometimes that's hard to believe, but it's true. We need to hang on to it. And fifth, we're also men to love, fear, honor him with all our hearts. Beloved, this God wants your love, he wants your awe, he wants your esteem, and he wants your heart. He wanted the heart of King Josiah, and you can see from the scripture reading that he got his heart. And that's what he wants from all of his people, from all of his children. From each and every one of us, he wants our hearts. Not just our mouths and our lips that can so readily flap away idly. Not just our eyes that are so easily diverted. Not just our ears that are so easily enticed. But our hearts. That's what he wants. And then the Heidelberg Catechism lists seven things, seven verbs. If you add them all up, that's what God wants from you. He wants your knowing, trust, submission, expectation, love, fear, and honor. Seven things, you know. Seven usually stands in the Bible for fullness. And maybe this is the Catechism's way of saying to us, God wants all of you. Give it all to him. And he will fill and bless your life as no one else can.
Well, beloved, all of that is a command, it's a call. But you know, in that, there is also at the same time a warning. For while God wants your trust and your loyalty, He's not the only one competing for your heart. The Catechism mentions the competition when it lists all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, prayer to saints, or other creatures. Now, you may be inclined to read that list and say to yourself, ancient competition indeed. Who today buys or manufactures or bows down before idols of wood or stone, much less silver or gold? Who today is into witchcraft or sorcery? Who today is into praying to saints? And as for praying to other creatures, who does that today? Now, before you get too dismissive, wait a moment. For just because the list is old doesn't mean it's not current. I'm not into witchcraft or superstition, so I don't watch them. But I think I'm right in saying there are any number of television programs today that center on the occult, on aliens and demons and all kinds of fanciful plots and schemes and evil forces. I would say the devil's not dead, he's alive. He's living in your television. And as for praying to saints and depending on them to help you and to intercede for you, that too is alive and current in a certain church. And then there's praying to other creatures, that too goes on. Examine some of the religions that come to us from the east and and what do you see? Insect worship, animal worship, Cow worship. Yes, and then there's idolatry. We conveniently restrict idolatry to things of wood, stone, silver, or gold, as I mentioned. But that's simply being naive or foolish or in denial. But look at what answer 95 says about idolatry. It is having or inventing something in which to put our trust, our hope or confidence. And what is that really saying, beloved? Is it not saying that we people need, always need something or someone to trust in? And if we cannot find that someone or something, we will make him or invent him or find him? You know what drives idolatry? It's fear. When the ancients feared for their crops, they made bales. When they worried about their house and their well-being, they went to Beelzebub. When they had their money problems, they went to Mammon. When they had their sex problems, they went to Astarta. They made a god for every fear that arose in their lives. And I dare say people are still doing that. 
Those who have financial security issues worship mammon, only he now comes often in the forms of lotteries, casinos, and grow-ups. And those who have personality problems often worship the god of self-esteem. And those who have sex issues worship the god of Viagra and pornography. And those who suffer the boredom blues look to the god of holidays and sport. And many with health issues look to the god of drugs. You see, the more fears, the more gods. And as well, the more gods, the more churches, or dare I say temples. I know people, and you may know them too, who worship at the temple of the old car. I know people who should be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, but who worship in the temple of the flea market. I've come across people who worship the temple of the weekend, or the temple of the comfort of their beds, or the temple of self-indulgence, or the temple of the party, or the joint, or the temple of sports. It's so easy to go on and on. But the point is, beloved, that today we have more forms of idolatry and gods than perhaps ever before. Education, freedom, and prosperity have not made us smarter and better. They have simply turned us into more efficient idol factories. Oh, and I know that in and of themselves, a lot of the things mentioned may not be bad. Having a hobby restoring an old car isn't bad. Going to a flea market looking for a bargain isn't bad. Enjoying the comfort of your bed isn't bad either. But you know, when it becomes kind of an all-consuming passion, when it's the thing that seems to drive your life, when it consumes your talk and your thoughts and your money and your time, It's a God. And therefore, beloved, a warning is not out of place. Idolatry and the making of idols is never an innocent pastime. It is a dangerous business. The Catechism says right up front in in answer 94 that for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry. The book of the law that Helkiah the priest found is filled with warnings from one end about the ill effects and the grim consequences of idolatry. The message that comes to King Josiah from the Lord through the prophetess Hilda is filled with judgment and condemnation. Idolatry is not innocent stuff. And you know, the New Testament drives this home as well, and perhaps nobody drives it home better or more succinctly than the Apostle John. You know, the Apostle of Love. He says, children, dear children, keep yourselves 
from idols. Those were his last words in his first letter. Keep yourselves from idols. Because, beloved, the goal and the intent of the first commandment is to direct us to God. It's to direct us to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. And so there you have the, the antidote to idolatry is to stay as close as possible to the only true God. And how do you do that? Well, the answer is in the word of God. For one, it's found in the written word of God or in the Bible. The constant reading, study, reflection, and application of the Word of God to our lives will keep us close to Him. And to help you in that, we are about to commence another season of of study. A season filled not simply with work and education, but also with Bible study. And the aim of that study in our worship services, in our study groups, in our youth groups, our homes, our outreach, is to glue us more and more to the only true God, the God of the covenant, the God of the book of the law. And yet, beloved, at the same time, staying close is not just a matter of studying and applying the written word. It's also a matter of reliance on and abiding fellowship with the living word, Jesus Christ. You know, none of this keeping of the first commandment is possible in and of itself. Our best intentions, our greatest plans, our deepest determination, none of that is going to do it. Now, beloved, we need the wisdom of Jesus Christ to direct us. We need the redeeming work of Christ to cleanse us. And we need the Spirit of Christ to empower us every day. So look to Christ. Live out of Christ. Live out of His Word. And He will keep you from idols and direct you to God. His God and our God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we come to you thanking you for reminding us. Sometimes, Father, when we look at the law of the Ten Commandments as the rule for thankful living, we kind of get lost in the details. We see so many things coming at us, and we forget what is first and foundational. And therefore, Father, remind us, that the only way to do this law thing, the only way to live in true thankfulness is to begin with you, to live close to you, to live out of your promises and your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ every day. 
Father, help us. Help us to do that today and every day of our lives. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.